Hello, listeners. This is Brian Winston, and I'd like to welcome you to the December 9th edition of Unity in Christ. Not long ago, a 64-year-old woman was arrested for larceny in Korea. It started on January 7th when she stole $250 worth of clothing from a store, and she continued five more times until the 23rd of the month for a total of $1,320 worth of merchandise. What was surprising was that she did not steal items that were necessary for her to live, but brand name clothing and bags. She explained to the police that the reason she stole these items was because she could not suppress her impulse for stealing. This was due to the medication she was on for diabetes and hypertension. Whenever she felt stress, she took her medication. However, when she decided not to take her medication, she would have an uncontrollable impulse to steal. According to her story, she knew that it was wrong to steal. She also knew that if she did not take her medication, she would have the urge to steal again. Sadly, nowadays in Korea, we learn from the news that there is a growing population of people who steal out of impulse. Recently, crimes that happen impulsively rather than planned are on the rise, especially crimes from men in their 30s violating teenagers whom they had just seen while walking on the streets, or people beating others just by making eye contact. This has become so common that it is no longer newsworthy. Only a violent and unplanned murder is considered newsworthy. There was a young high school graduate who could not get a job and for some reason killed his mother and aunt. That made the news. A teenager killed his sick father by beating him to death because he did not give him an allowance. A man who simply needed money trespassed into an apartment and killed a woman in her 50s, then ran away with her valuables. A man, without any reason at all, killed three people at a career center just because he was angry. The list goes on and on. And yet, did any of these people not know they were committing an act that was wrong? Wouldn't their excuse be because they couldn't control their emotions? I also sometimes experience sudden anger, don't you? However, wouldn't our lives be difficult if we burst out in anger whenever we get angry? Didn't Proverbs 16.32 say, The patient man is better than a warrior, and a man who controls his temper is better than one who takes a city. We have learned that it is not right to express our anger whenever we are angry or do what we feel like doing. That is why we control our anger and our desires.
Children act as they feel. It's in their nature. That is why we educate them. We teach them what is right and what is wrong. We teach them until they subconsciously act according to what they have learned. But if an adult still acts out from his or her feelings, then wouldn't we say that an individual needs to be better educated? You know, before I met Jesus... I also lived according to my emotions and desires. I easily expressed my anger and screamed, and if I was upset, I would pick a fight with someone. However, when I accepted Jesus into my life, the Holy Spirit, who entered and abides within me, started to teach me. 
he began to make me think whether I should act out on my emotions or reflect on the Word of God. I am not saying that I'm fully living like that, but I can certainly say there was a change within me. My angry outbursts would happen less frequently. I began to imagine my outbursts in my head, so it did not lead to action. I believe the Holy Spirit was training my soul. He chose me, a sinner, and cleansed me of my sin and gave me the authority to be his child, molding me to be worthy of the one who has received eternal life. Just as parents educate their children constantly, the Holy Spirit also constantly educates us without giving up on us. He is training us to leave behind our natural being and possess God's characteristics within our soul. This training is not easy because it must be done repeatedly until we are doing it naturally. We can't give up. It is mandatory training for God's children. So how about you? Are you under the Lord's training? Love thee for 
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Hiding from the Lord, based on Isaiah chapter 2, verses 6 through 22. I hope you all have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. For my growing up, I still remember my mom chasing me through the house with the book of Proverbs. And she used to have an arsenal of Proverbs aimed directly at pride. And it didn't seem to matter what I did, but it always came back to the fact that I had a proud little heart. Uh, So she would read stuff like Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before the fall. But let me ask you this morning, as you think about pride and as you think about the sin of pride, would you agree that we often overlook or ignore the naughtiness of haughtiness? Have you noticed that? I mean, we can pick it out from a mile away, but so often it doesn't seem to be like one of those sins that we need to deal with. See, we don't seem to fear the pervasiveness of the problem of pride or its destructiveness. I don't know that we necessarily believe that it is as bad as the Word of God says that it is. Well, to paraphrase Charles Spurgeon, we know that pride is not a sin that is alien to all of us, but is probably indigenous to every one of us. He says it this way, and I had to paraphrase uh, what he said, so take it like this. Charles Spurgeon said something like this, pride is a weed that will grow anywhere and everywhere. It grows on a rock as well as in a garden. Pride will grow in the heart of an IT technician as well as the president, the college student as well as the professor, and in the pew at least as well as in the pulpit. See, pride is a human problem, but it's not just about people who walk with swag, or talk with a brag. Like, pride, according to the Bible, is something deeper. And see, we're back in our Looking at Jesus series in Isaiah, where we're going to be looking at this topic today. Now, I've told you before that Isaiah breaks up his book as basically a depiction of what the coming Messiah, who was going to save Judah, would be like. He was going to be a king, a servant, and a conqueror. All three of those together. Well, we know that Judah experienced 52 years of prosperity under the reign of Uzziah up to the time of the writing of Isaiah and the experiences he wrote about. His life and death, that of Uzziah's, set the context for the launching of Isaiah's ministry, which would see great destruction. And see, Uzziah, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And not only that, we're told that he did other things. Uh, so he fortified the buildings. He fortified Judah with walls and towers. He amassed wealth, and he reminded them of King Solomon. He was a great king. Now, just a reminder, pride grows best in the soils of security, prosperity, and success. And that's where pride grows best. And we're going to see that here this morning. We tend to become too confident in ourselves and forgetful of destruction when things are going well. In fact, when things go well, we tend to get comfortable. Now, last week, Isaiah gave us a spectacular vision of what the day of the Lord, that last day, would be like for the nations. But in our text this morning, it's going to remind us that it will be the worst day ever for those who are proud in Judah. Now, here's our big idea this morning, something that we all need to have on the forefront of our minds, and that's this. There is only one place to hide on the last day. Only one place. And we're going to see this in a couple of ways, but first... Notice in verses 6 to 9 that Isaiah says pride 
is a bad kind of humble. Isaiah, he just told the future about how incredibly bright it was for the nations in the first four verses. But take note here of how shockingly different this day, this ideal end awaiting the nations looks in comparison to the real state of affairs in Judah in verses 6 to 9. Now here's what he says. Look there with me. Isaiah 2, verses 6 to 9. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of the fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike their hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end of their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Now, did you see how Isaiah actually contrasts the future exaltation of the nations to expose the horror of Judah's present humiliation. There's a compare and contrast that's going on here to emphasize this. See, Judah would have been shocked by this dramatic reversal. Everything looks so backwards. It's, it's not the way that they would think that it should happen. It should be opposite. But God here, we are told, looks way different in what he communicates and what they expected. See, God, we were told, will expect, will accept the worship of the nations, but he will reject his people, Judah. The nations, they are going to run to Mount Zion to hear from the word of the Lord about their glorious future. But God rejects his people, Judah. The nation, they will run to Mount Zion to hear from God about their glorious future. And here we find that Judah actually runs away from Mount Zion to the Philistine fortune tellers for their futures. The nations will receive peace, but Judah is stockpiling weapons. They are locked and loaded for war with their horses and chariots. And the nations, they will worship their creator. But Judah, Judah worships gods that they have created with their own hands. Do you see it? God created Judah to look like heaven on earth, a picture of who God is. And yet, in the midst of their prosperity and security, they drifted so far from God that Isaiah interrupts this list of offenses. And catch this, he drops one of the most devastating lines in all of the Bible about God's people when he speaks to God about Judah. And he says this, he says in verse 9, do not forgive Judah. Tell me that's not the worst word you could possibly imagine hearing about someone speaking to God about you. And here it is the prophet Isaiah speaking of Judah. Your sins are so bad, he is saying to God, don't forgive them. Now it seems, it sounds in context like Isaiah is even more upset with his Jewish brothers than God is, if that's possible. But we know, don't we, brothers and sisters, that God's mercy is greater and that Jesus is greater than Isaiah because Jesus' words from the cross to His enemies were what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so here we see from Isaiah, they are not worthy of forgiveness and then Christ comes and says there is forgiveness to be had. But why is Isaiah so upset with his fellow Jewish brothers? And maybe when you're reading through these offenses in the first three verses, that maybe you're thinking these don't really look like they go together? Are they really unrelated? I believe in context, Isaiah tips the hat that these four things that he lists are actually connected. 
and they go together. The reason I say that is you'll notice that in verse 9, notice in verse 9, after listing those offenses, he says, so, a word that tips us off that this is the result, and I believe it's the result of all four of these things, it's the result of those fortune tellers and the greed and the armies and the idolatry that they've been engaged in. He says, so, as a result of these things, man is humbled and each one is brought low. I don't know about you, but I tend to think of humility as a good thing. My mom in the Bible taught me that. But it's clearly bad here because notice that Isaiah says, they have humbled themselves, don't forgive them for what they've done. So whatever this humility is, it doesn't look good. Here's what I think is going on. Isaiah says each of these demonstrates ways that Judah humbled themselves by their proud confidence in something other than their God, and they are less human for it. See, pride is the worst kind of humility. It takes you lower than you know. But let's make clear what's going on here so that we understand what pride is. It it might be one of those things that you hear, and you're not thinking about it in the categories that God speaks about it. So how should we think about pride according to the Bible? I think that what we tend to do is think about pride as something that is privatized, right? So if somebody is proud, it's because an individual thinks about himself or herself more than they ought to. It's really about them and the way they see themselves. But catch this, pride according to the Bible doesn't just describe the way that a person views himself or herself. It's not that they just see themselves as more than they should, not according to the Bible. According to the Bible... Pride is actually a relational term. Pride is not just thinking too much of yourself, it's also thinking too little of God. That means that pride is a spiritual issue, an issue of faith, where we are, it speaks of where we are putting our heart's ultimate confidence and trust. So when the Bible says that you're proud, it's speaking about the way, not just that you see yourself, but the way that you see yourself before God. See, Judah, they had pride or self-confidence that displayed itself in a variety of ways. Their confidence was anywhere, almost everywhere else, other than in their God. They were trusting in the fortune tellers. They wanted a better future than what God offered them. The future that we just heard about in the first four verses. They said, well, maybe the fortune tellers have something better for us. I think it's interesting here that we see that they are looking to someone else for a better future. I hope that you're not looking to any of a number of things for a better future than what God has for you. I mean, we have all kinds of options today, right? You got horoscopes, Charlie Charlie, the eight ball. And I hope you understand that none of those are going to shake out a better future for you than God. God has an amazing future for us. Just read his word. But I think there's something perhaps more here. Could it be that the reason that he begins with the fortune tellers speaks to the way that their shift in confidence with God actually began with the confidence and trust that they put in the future that God promised for them? Is that where it all started? Did it start with, we don't believe you have the future for us that you've promised us anymore, and now I'm not so sure I understand everything around me? Could just be that maybe that's what's happened to them. Maybe that's what's happened to you today. You've forgotten, lost sight of the grand future that God has for you. Our lives are not better for it when we forget how glorious the future is that awaits us. 
But then notice not only fortune tellers, they, they placed their trust in the money that they hoarded so that they didn't need to depend on God for their daily bread. They stockpiled weapons. You'll remember that David in the Psalms, Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in horses and chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Looks like Judah said, well, we'll take the chariots. See, we can see those chariots. We can't see God. Do you see how these connect to idolatry? Their confidence, their trust, their future. It's placed in these things that are before their eyes. And it's not really a big step to go from there into crafting gods with their own hands that look more like their imaginations. See, Judah trusted idols they created rather than their creator. You might not have thought of yourself as an idolater, but historically, you've probably heard many pastors say that our hearts are idol factories. In other words, we in our hearts tend to put our confidence and trust in almost anything other than God. Speaking of this in counterfeit idols, Tim Keller said something helpful defining idols. He says, basically, you don't have to burn incense to a little statue of a Buddha to be an idolater. Essentially, an idol is really anything that is more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give is an idol. And if you connect this with Greg Beale rightly says that you become what you worship, you know that you're in a dangerous place if you turn your worship from the creator God to the created thing. That is a massively bad deal, right? It does something to us, says something about us that is not as good as what God has for us. This is why Isaiah says in verse 9 that idolatry is as much about dehumanizing of humanity as it is about the degoding of God. We are less human when we do not worship God as we ought. Now don't miss this. Biblical pride, the more that we pursue it, the less human we become. Biblical pride makes us less human. See, confidence in God and the dignity of human, they rise and fall together. Maybe you haven't thought about that. But the less that we have confidence in the greatness of God, the less that we are going to become human as God made us to be. We need not lose a vision of a glorious God. If we lose a vision of a glorious God, our problem is not just that we have robbed God of His glory. That's true. But the reality is we have robbed ourselves of the value and dignity that God has given us as creations and creatures uniquely made in the image of God. So when we aren't worshiping God as we ought, we are less for it every time. If you're in Christ, Christ is where your identity is hid. It is hidden in Him and Him alone. And there is nothing else, no adjective that you add to that to make it more glorious or valuable or meaningful. Christ is all in all. So you were made to image the creator of the universe. Why would you settle for anything less? Let me ask you, Christian, this morning. How do you go about shutting down the God factory of your hearts? How do you fight that? But if we know that all of us struggle with this this tendency to make idols out of our desires and the things that we want, and those things begin to shape us way before we begin to fashion them, then how do we shut that down? Say, I want to bolster your confidence in God 
in a number of ways. I think that you should bolster your confidence in God so that these little gods that we build for ourselves look meaningless and worthless as soon as they drop off the assembly line, right? So how do you do that? I believe you can bolster your confidence in God by joining a local church, the pillar and buttress of truth. As other Christians surround you with who God really is, week after week, you hear the Word of God proclaimed to you, reminding you of what God really looks like. You sing songs praising the true God for His true attributes. You constantly are confronted week in and week out with your glorious God. Friends, you need that. You need that every day. You need that every week. You need the people of God. That is a people who will come after you when your confidence wanes. Put sin to death. It's another way. Because sin's ultimate aim is to distract you from the King of glory. And have you settle for something less? Or or what about this? Third, watch out for yourself and others in prosperity and suffering. You know, prosperity and suffering both can be dangerous places. Are you keeping watch on your brothers and sisters in Christ as they go through suffering and prosperity and drawing their attention, driving their attention towards God? Make sure you don't misunderstand the promises of God. Have you ever been victim of that? Have you gone to work in your little idol factory because you misunderstood a promise of God. You thought that God promised you something that His Word never promised you. You had expectations that were not met, that God did not set. And when those things did not come through, you you turned to making other little gods that were better, that fit the image that you wanted, rather than the image of God that we find clearly revealed in the Bible. I mean, I do that all the time. Man, God does something, I don't like it. I'm like, well, I'm not sure you kept your part of the deal. He's like, that wasn't part of the deal. So maybe you have some promises that you've just misunderstood. You know, for instance, God didn't promise you that you would not suffer in this life. He actually said that you would. He did not promise that your your wife would not leave you or that your friends would not die or that you would drive a Bentley or that you would have kids or that you would never be underemployed in this life. He didn't say that. But He did promise that Jesus is coming back and that He's going to set all things right. That's a promise you can bank on. So brothers and sisters, we need to be looking with our hope in the right places. But there's a second thing that we see in our text this morning. And that's that the proud experience the true humility. They experience true humility in the presence of God. See, Judah's confidence, it shifted from from God during the reign of Uzziah to this world. And Isaiah attempts to correct their vision. And the way that he does that is with this terrifying splendor of God's majesty showing up. Now don't miss this as you read. Isaiah, he repeats two things three times. You're going to see it throughout. He says this, he says in verses 10, 19, and 21, first, the splendor of God's majesty will be revealed. And then second, the proud will run and hide before the terror of the Lord. God's glory shows up, people run. Now notice first, the splendor of God's majesty, it will embarrass what we take confidence in. We see that in verses 10 to 16. Look there with me. Isaiah 2, verses 10 to 16. It says, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted, and it shall be brought low against all the cedars of Lebanon. 
lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, should be lifted up against all these. But God's patience, it allowed Judah to exalt all kinds of natural and man-made things above God in their hearts. They were elevating all sorts of things to a place that really was for God. And created things began to look big as a creator seemed to look so small until, right? Until God shows up in the splendor of His majesty on His day. I love this phrase. Gary Smith, in his commentary, says the splendor of His majesty is really an attempt to describe the visible appearance of the glorious presence of God in all of His exalted fullness. What a vision, right? Unadulterated God, the veil gets pulled back and you see Him full of glory. That's what that phrase means. In other words, God here is not pictured as a monster. But those who have not trusted in God are terrified. And verse 12 actually calls him Sediat Yahweh, or the Lord of hosts. See, when the, the king of heavenly armies, heavenly host, arrives, everyone drops their slingshots. Do you see it? Like, we've been fighting, we've been rebelling. Like, I can see this is over now, right? So, there, any imagined power to fight God is shown to be just that, an imagination. Everything else looks small now before the splendor of God's majesty. And did you see what the proud had put their trust in? The first four of those things that he lists actually show that they put their hearts in natural objects. And it shows how men's hearts, we do unnatural things with natural objects. Like the glorious cedars of Lebanon, you know, which are known for being glorious in their heights and beauty. And the oaks of Bashan that were used and crafted to make idols. But verse 22 even adds that they fear man more than they fear God. And God even put breath in the nostrils of the creature that they're worshiping. So even he is a creature that has been created by God, and yet they have turned to worship him as well. And this is how sinful the people of God have become. But did you see how the splendor of God's majesty dwarfs and destroys anything they trust with their future apart from Him. Did you see that? God shows up all of those issues that seem so big to you right now. Maybe the things that are making it hard for you even to listen to God's Word in this moment. Those things will be made to shown for what they really are, which is so small. Christian, I just want to ask you this morning, what about you? Are you putting your confidence in something today that you should not. Don't misunderstand me. I, I'm not saying this morning that you shouldn't get a job that, that pays enough to provide for your family. I'm not saying that you shouldn't save for retirement. So that's not what I'm saying. No, I'm saying that here what we need to be considering is this. Are we putting undue confidence in something that is controlling our lives other than pursuing God? A really good test for that this morning is to ask yourself, what in my life 
could I not be happy without? In other words, if God were to take this thing away from me, if he were to rip it out of my clutches, I don't know that I would love God anymore. What is that for you? You know, it could be a good thing. I know that you've probably heard before uh, the saying that good gifts make bad gods. Could be all kinds of good things that if God were to take away, like you just would not be happy with God anymore. But as the kids these days say, we need to be woke to what stokes us. We need to be awake to what's going on in our hearts and where we are placing our confidence even as believers. See, whatever you put your confidence in will set the trajectory of your life, and not just this life, but the life that is to come. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it come the springs of life. So when the rug of your life gets pulled out from under you, what do you reach for? Do you reach for Christ and His people, or are you looking for other things? Do you pray? Do you confess your sins? Do you read God's Word? Or do you quit serving others? Do you isolate yourself? Here's my guess. When the rug gets pulled out from you, I believe that you reach for what you've already been holding to. Do you quit praying, reading God's Word, attending church, giving generously, living a holy life, protecting what you watch on TV, and looking to Christ, who is the image of the invisible God? Because catch this, beauty rest for sleep, Netflix, Charles Schwab, and airbags. They're good things, but they cannot save you or give you lasting hope. See, I can promise you this. When Jesus returns, we'll know what or who we've been trusting in. And those not trusting in Christ, we are told in verses 17 to 21, they have nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to hide. Look there with me in verses 17 to 21. This is one of really the scariest scenes in the Bible. There we're told that the proud can't get low enough to escape God on that day. And what a terrifying vision we see here. Look in verses 17 to 21 again at at what he says. The word of the Lord says this, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. And in that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the the rocks and to the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. See, Judah, they spent their whole lives trying to exalt other things above their God. But on that last day, they can't get low enough to get away from God. See, they misinterpreted God's patience, I believe, as disinterest. And God's seeming lack of response here, brothers and sisters, it's more about timing than consent. That God will act. He will bring about justice. And catch this, on the last day, they try to hide in the clefts of the rocks and the dust from which God made them when confronted by the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of their majesty. See, the visible side of God's power and beauty appears. But Judah, while they should be marveling and worshiping, instead they're running for their lives. Do you see it? It shouldn't be like this. But why? 
It's because when God shows up in all of his glory, they run like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, ashamed, ashamed and scared of God's judgment. And they drag their swag into the cleft of the rock before the splendor of God's majesty. Their unwitting, proud humility will be replaced with the humility that sees God rightly exalted and themselves quickly descending lower and lower. They recognize their sin guilt and that everything that they put confidence in is, is powerless on that day. And they know that God will rightly judge them. See, there really is something terrifying about the beauty of the Lord and all of its protection and perfection and power. It, there's something amazing and startling about it. And they know clearly as God's glory becomes visible, what's always been true, that there is no other God other than Him. They know that God will rightly judge them, that He is just. And there really is something terrifying about the beauty of the Lord elsewhere in the Bible, isn't there? I mean, you'll remember there are others who have sought to see the beauty of the Lord. You remember Moses and Elijah wanted to see God. How many of you think you're as holy as Moses and Elijah? Moses and Elijah... Prophets of God who led major movements of God for the people of God, who were revered in the history of God's people. Those two men, the men, Mount of Transfiguration, were you there? I mean, these are great guys. And in the midst of that, we're told that they wanted to see God face to face. And you know what happens when God comes before both of them? He says, I need to hide you in the cleft of a rock because you cannot look on my glory. You can't handle it. And so when you come before me, it needs to be in a shielded presence where you're in the cleft of a rock, where I hide you and protect you from the glory that comes before you. That's why the people of God, as they worship God in the temple, needed a veil to separate them from the feet of God because they couldn't handle viewing the very feet of God in the presence of the temple. It would undo them. And here we see Judah needed to be saved on the final days as much as the nations did. See, they they too uh, were not able to come on Mount Zion without God doing something to change their future. Of course, Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that this great day that is spoken of is actually speaking of Jesus on the final day when Jesus will return. You remember, He was humbled through His life and death for us, and then He was exalted in Philippians 2 and given a name above every name at which we are told that on the last day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you see it? The swag is bending. The brag is confessing. It is all about Jesus on that day. And on that day, we see Christ high and lifted up as He ought to be. And let me just encourage you this morning as you read this. If you have not put your faith in this Christ who died for you, humbled himself for you, and was raised from the dead, and sits at the right hand of the Father, if you've not put your faith in him today, then you need to hide, and there's only one place to hide. There's only one place for us to go, and that is Jesus Christ himself. So if you're not a Christian, don't leave here this morning without putting your faith in Jesus. I've had too many people, unbelievers, leave here, not put their faith in Jesus, and die and go before the presence of God without Christ. Don't let that be you today. You know, sometimes I think that what we do is we don't read the New Testament and we sort of just give it the label of grace and we don't recognize that Jesus is a God of judgment and that justice will be done. And we are told that really what we are called to do is either to hide today or you will not be able to hide on the last day. Did you know that? Yeah, the Bible tells us that. It says, 
You can either hide today or you will not be able to hide on the last day. That's the message of the New Testament. That's the message of the Old Testament. That's God's message for us. Now, where do we hide today? Well, we get a great text in Colossians 3, 1-4. There we see that we can either hide in Jesus today or we can try to hide from Jesus on the last day. In Colossians 3, 1-4, Paul says to those who have put their faith in Christ, he says this, and he says, if then you have been raised with Christ... We have been putting our faith in Christ. He says, if you have been raised with Christ, in other words, God has already exalted us in Christ far above any proud notions that we can conceive of for ourselves. Like you can't lift high enough for what God's done for you. Then he says this, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things on the earth. That's what Judah was doing. For, he says this, you have died and your life is hidden right now with Christ in God. Where's Christ right now? In heaven. You see it? Like you're already, there's a sense in which you're already there by faith. Already exalted far above anything that you can imagine. And then verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears on that last day, then you also will appear with Him, not against Him with Him. Isn't that a good message? So, friends, if you're not hidden yourself in Jesus, do it today. Because on that last day, we're told there actually is no hope for those who have not hidden in Christ. In Revelation, in that really terrifying text that we opened the service with, sorry about that, we're just trying to be thematically consistent, but Revelation 6, 15-17, John writes this about that last day. On that day, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves, right? They threw themselves in with the moles and the bats. And among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks. Okay, you can see it. They're like buried. And they said, okay, we've hidden ourselves, but we aren't hidden enough. And he goes on to say, To the mountains and the rocks, those who are hiding, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Do you see it? We can hide ourselves in Christ today and experience the kind of exaltation with which there is no parallel. Or we can continue to try to feebly lift ourselves up and make ourselves exalted and not look to God, and on that last day, reality shows up, and we cannot hide ourselves deep enough. There's good news here, though. There is good news. The good news of this text that we read in Revelation is, is this, hear me, there is still somewhere to hide. Don't let that last day sneak up on you. There is somewhere to hide today. If you do not know Christ, don't miss this. You can hide yourself in Christ today by turning from living for sin and your idols to making Christ your King. And today is the day to hide because you will not be able to hide on that last day if you have not already been hidden in Him. God's wrath will visit unrepentant sinners who have not put their faith in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, He is the rock of ages cleft for you and me. So ask Christ today, let me hide myself in Thee. Only in Christ can we withstand God's wrath. There is nowhere safe apart from Him. Let's pray. 
Hallelujah. Now and forevermore, Lord, that every nation on the earth worship you. Let a fresh wind of your spirit blow across this entire earth with the glory and honor of the Father, the praise and adoration of the Son. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. Download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, available on Play Store and App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Androids or iPhones. Just search for Heart and Soul to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602-866-8999 or heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. That's H-E-A-R-T-A-N-D-S-E-O-U-L dot org at gmail.com. Following this program is the questions from the Bible Program Series. Hello everyone, this is Susan Holtgrew, your host for our program, Questions from the Bible. I once read an article about Korea's lost cultural heritage, specifically artifacts. Since the late 19th century, from Japanese colonization to the separation of North and South Korea, there have been more than 70,000 lost or stolen artifacts of Korean heritage. This is not unique to just Korea. Many countries that had once been colonized were robbed of their cultural artifacts by the ruling country. As several countries have raised their voices in wanting their stolen objects returned, there have been some cases where they have been given back to their rightful owners. One example was Italy's government returning an Ethiopian obelisk they had stolen during colonization. Reading such articles on the return of cultural artifacts, a certain scene from the Bible comes to mind. It is the story of the Ark of the Covenant that was taken during Israel's war with the Philistines and brought back to the city of David, or Jerusalem. It is recorded in the Bible that as David brought the Ark to Jerusalem, he was so happy that he danced before the Lord, and all of Israel shouted and sounded the trumpet. This might have been one of the most glorious moments in ancient Jerusalem history. Most likely, David documented the praise of this glorious moment in a psalm, and many Bible scholars claim Psalm 24 was written based on this moment. Today, for questions from the Bible, we will look at the passage from David's psalm where he joyfully praised God for the Ark of the Covenant coming back into Jerusalem. Today's question is from Psalm 24, verse 3, where David asks, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? 
In 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see the Ark of the Covenant, which had been in the house of Abinadab since the time of Judges, being brought back to Jerusalem by David. The previous chapter had shown David being anointed as king of Israel, capturing Jerusalem from the Jebusites and making Jerusalem his city. It was not of David's strength that he became king of Israel, nor was he able to unify and fortify the country on his own, but rather by the fact that God was with him. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 10 states, David became greater and greater, for the Lord God of hosts was with him. David knew this very well. It is recorded in verse 12. And David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Though he had become king of Israel, David knew very well that it was God's will, and God was the true king of Israel. So after he became king, he brought back the ark that represented the presence of God. It was obvious to him that the place of the king is where God, the true king of Israel, should be. Now the ark was brought into Jerusalem. As I recite David's praise from Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10, I would like you to picture in your mind the scene of God's presence and his glory, which is the ark passing through the city gates of Jerusalem. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This praise describes the ark passing through the gates as God, the King of glory, passes through. Before this praise, in verse 3, David asks, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? He is asking, Who has the right to stand on the mountain of the house of the Lord, the holy place where the King of glory resides? The answer to this question is in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. To have clean hands means to have done nothing deserving of condemnation in front of God. A pure heart is equivalent to clean hands, but also includes the motives of the heart. A person of clean hands and pure heart. Does such a person exist in this world? Is there really a person so clean of actions and motives who can stand on the mountain of the house of the Lord, the holy place? You and I all know that there is no one who can do so except for one, Jesus Christ. We ourselves cannot climb up the mountain to the house of the Lord and stand on the holy place. But Jesus Christ, with what he has done to purify us, has made us able to stand in that place. It is through his death on the cross at Calvary that pays for our sins and gives us the right to enter into the holy place of God. Jesus Christ cleansed our filthy hands and purified our wretched hearts. It is because of Jesus that we are able to stand in his holy place and give praises like David while receiving the King of glory in our lives.
The praise from Psalm 24 is not a praise meant to end after David brought back the ark. This is a praise that was meant to be given when Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. It is also a praise that we must give as someone who believes and follows Jesus as our Lord, because it is written that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in us. Therefore, we must open our hearts, thirst for the presence of the Lord, and give praise to his glory. And this praise will be given on the day the Lord returns as the King of glory, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is an extremely happy event for a country when a stolen cultural artifact is returned and where international attention is granted. Then how vast is the grace we received through Jesus Christ, who has cleansed us from sin and allows us to stand before God. My hope for us is to give praise each and every day to the King of glory, who allows us to stand in his holy place. This ends our time for today's Questions from the Bible program, and I look forward to speaking with you next time. Thank you, and God bless you.
The Apostle Paul confesses in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. If an individual becomes a child of God, it is obvious that he or she will be raised as God's child. I'm saying this because I want to ask you if you are growing in the Lord as His child. If you examine yourself, is there a difference between your previous life when you had not met Jesus Christ and after when you accepted Him as your Lord and Savior? Do you think you see fruit bearing in your life? If there is no change before and after you met Jesus, then maybe you have not met Him yet. Although God loves us for who we are, He does not leave us alone to live as our old self. He starts molding and shaping us to be more like Jesus. There is one more thing I want to ask you. If there was a change in your soul, was the change proportional to that period of your belief? For example, if you are a believer of Christ for five years, is there five years worth of change within yourself? If ten years, then is there ten years worth of change? How about twenty, thirty, or fifty years? Perhaps there was a change. However, did it stop at some point in time? God's Word has the power of life, and if His Word comes in us, it will sprout and grow to bear fruit. That fruit will also be given to others, but it is not easy to see such work happening around us. There is power in the testimony of life. We still see many Christians acting on their emotions and thoughts. There are those who are far from supporting life, but instead want to destroy it. How about you? What is the basis of your actions? Are they from your impulses, emotions, and thoughts? Or is it the Word of God that holds on to you? Hebrews 5 strongly rebukes those who do not mature in Christ and teaches what we ought to do as growing Christians. In verses 12 through 14, we read, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Do not be satisfied with where you are comfortable. We Christians can never be content until the day we stand in front of the Lord. We must constantly grow in the Lord and become more Christ-like. Impulsive actions and thoughts are the characteristics of a little child 
give up on them, and live as mature individuals in Christ. That is what God wants from us. I hope that we can all grow in maturity in the Lord. This concludes today's program. Thank you for joining me, and we will see you again next week. God bless. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving seems, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ Took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless pain. This gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones He came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was dead. Up from the grave